I know, it's a pretty violent thumbnail for this episode. And yeah, we are featuring a story today that involves a murder. It's a pretty famous murder. It's one of the better known Bible stories. It even got featured in a musical. But it's a disturbing story in some ways, so if we're looking into it, we better have a good reason to. How's this? If humanity understood the message behind this fictional killing, it would spare the world from an untold amount of actual killing, both physical killing and the killing of the heart that comes with hatred and division. Tonight we're going to look at what these archetypes can tell us about a phenomenon that has played out in the human psyche across history, and is still doing so today. We're going to try to intervene to see if we can get Cain to rethink his decision. Stay tuned. If you're going to play the reading Swedenborg game, you got to be able to do what we're doing tonight. And by that, I mean you got to be able to walk through this mysterious forest of biblical interpretation. Uh, this is the show, Swedenborg in Life, in case this is your first time. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host. Welcome. Great to have you here. If you want to be part of the conversation, get your questions and your comments in. Now, if you were to pick up Swedenborg's books in chronological order... The first, like, depending on translation, 15 are about teasing the meaning out of the stories, specifically from the beginning of the Old Testament. And it's done in a way in that the the words there are holding a symbolism that is applicable to everyone at any time. And this may sound like sort of X-Files, like, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. But let's look at it, because he, he gets very serious about... Every phrase has a consistent meaning, and it repeats, and there's patterns, and we're going to look and see, is there actually, you know, what what a lot of people say there is, a message from God in this text. And today we're specifically looking at the story of Cain and Abel, and how he says that this is a mythology of sorts about a psychological phenomenon that plays out all the time in the human mind, and if we understood it and could prevent it, the world would be a lot better. So the upside is big. Worst case scenario, it's confusing. Uh, At least there's some pretty graphics to look at. So let's do it. We're going to kick it off with the offerings and the brothers. Perhaps you've seen, we've done two shows like this before where we walk through a story from the Old Testament and look for meaning in it. And we did one about the seven days of creation, and we did one about Adam and Eve. And this follows on the heels of Adam and Eve. This is kind of an extension of that story, and we're going to look at how it relates. So we got to follow this story in order. Let's begin. Let's take a look at how the story starts. And this is Genesis 4, verse 1. And the human knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and delivered Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, Jehovah. Here we begin. The human is some better known as Adam. If you watch our show about Adam and Eve, the, the translation of the word, you could also say the human knew Eve, his wife. So let's take a look at what are those characters in this story. In Swedenborgian correspondence language, Every character symbolizes something. The human and his wife, Eve, symbolize the earliest church. 
And now I got to tell you a little bit about church. It's not like this is the first church they ever built with a steeple. It's talking about a mindset. Swedenborg said the church is a thing in your heart and your mind. So the earliest church is the earliest mode of consciousness for the human race. And, and as Swedenborg put it, this was, as many people say, this was the golden age, or this was when people had direct access to heaven when things made sense, when the world was as you think it should be. That was Adam and his wife Eve in the Garden of Eden. So then there's this phrase you see circled in red above me. So Eve has a baby. It's named Cain. and She says, I have acquired a man, Jehovah, which is a strange thing to say when you have a baby. Why? Let's, let's see if we can get to what was driving her to say. Have you ever been around someone who had a baby and they said, I have acquired a man, Jehovah? It's not what you'd expect. So what does it mean? Let's take a look. This is from Secrets of Heaven 338-339. It's going to all be from Secrets of Heaven, pretty much. I think this whole episode. So click that book, download it. Believe it or not, we're going through the truncated version right now. So if you want to read the whole thing, you can. The meaning of I have acquired the man Jehovah is the fact that faith among those called Cain was recognized and acknowledged as a thing in itself. Before this, it was as if people were unaware what faith was because they had a perception of everything involved in faith. When they started to create a distinct doctrine concerning faith, however, they drew out principles they had learned through perception, reduced them into a systematic theology, and named them, I have acquired the man Jehovah, as if they had stumbled onto some new thing. In this way, they turned what had been written on their hearts into a set of facts." So you may be lapping that up, or you may, what is he talking about? This is going to be abstract, angels on the head of a pin kind of thing. Let me explain it simply, which is, initially, you just knew how to live. You knew what was right. You knew what was true. Then people started to drift and to take this uh, intuitive sense of how to love and live life and turn it into what you would call theology or a uh, religious body of teaching. They pulled that out of it and sort of felt like, oh, this is something that, that I found and, and I discovered, rather than this is this common universal property that comes through everyone. So we're just setting the scene. This is, this is the intro to the character of Cain. So let's take a look at the next verse. And she went on to deliver his brother Abel. And Abel was a shepherd of the flock, and Cain was one who cultivated the ground. So, this verse, we get introduced to the character of Abel, and let's take a look at what he was, because once we've established our two main characters, we start to understand the story. And if you've been around Swedenborg at all, you could have seen this coming. The church's secondborn is charity, symbolized by Abel. Faith and charity, love and wisdom, goodness and truth. There's always this duality in Swedenborg. That word charity that you see up there, we use it in a slightly different sense these days. I've seen that also translated as thoughtfulness or kindness. It is loving other people. It's love. That, that's another way you could call able if you didn't want to say charity. It's not just charitable giving in the sense that we use it today. So you have Cain is faith, Abel is charity. Or to put it another way, Cain is ideas, Abel is love. So it's saying Abel was a shepherd of the flock. What does that mean? It's all going to be just little set this up, set that up, set this up. So bear with me as we lay the foundation. So let's look into that phrase, shepherd of the flock. 
This is again from Secrets of Heaven, 341 to 345. A shepherd of the flock is people who do the good that charity inspires. One who leads and teaches is called a shepherd or pastor, while those who led and taught are termed the flock. Those who lead the flock toward neighborly kindness are those who gather the flock. Those who do not lead toward neighborly kindness are those who scatter the flock. All togetherness and unity are the result of charity, while all dispersal and disjunction come from a lack of charity. What purpose is there to faith, or to the facts, insights, and teachings of faith, except that we may become what faith teaches us to be? And the primary thing it teaches is charity. If we do not gain charity, what is knowledge or doctrine but a nothing? One who cultivated the ground is people who lack charity, however attached they may be to a faith separated from love, which is no kind of faith. People whose sights were set on bodily and earthly interests were said to cultivate the ground. So, um, worth, uh, worth mentioning, setting the scene a little bit, in Swedenborg's day, you had Christian church, very powerful, with a very strong doctrine of faith alone. You know, like, the only thing that we do is have faith, and then we're saved. And there was a big dichotomy. There was no love in it, or there wasn't, a, you know, a doctrine of love or anything like that. So he is both going against, this is a description of the earliest times and how the human human race got out of being really cool and nice and into the warlike people we became, but then also... It's talking about the, the church in Swedenborg's day, and as we'll see, talking about many things after that. Okay, but the takeaway is Abel was a shepherd of the flock, meaning charity was something that did something good, led people to good. All right, let's take a look at the next. So we have Abel and Cain, and there's a cultivation of the ground there that it's talking about. So in Swedenborg, everything has a meaning, and to cultivate the ground, as it said there, is you're somebody who's doing faith things without charity or without love. That, and if you think about it, back to the sort of idyllic condition of the first human beings, uh, if you're thinking just biologically, evolutionarily, we were in, at some point, we were in the ecosystem and all we did was eat what the ecosystem provided. You look at gorillas or chimpanzees and they, they don't cultivate, they just know what's ripe when, they know what kind of plants are out there, they go and they grab and they eat, they just take from the ecosystem. And that is analogous to the mindset when you are plugged into God, you don't have this separate, here's religion, here's love, it's all just one thing, then you have the thoughts and feelings that you're meant to just come. And life is as it should be. We feel and act as it should be. But this falling out is like having to work until the ground just to get the good, good sort of thoughts and feelings. So I thought we could put our correspondence's hat on and look at somebody who is working to get food more in harmony with nature. And from that, we can, that's a physical representation of the spiritual phenomenon of getting the things we need to, to live and think, but doing it more in accord with the divine design and with God. So this is Lincoln Smith, and he's a forest gardener, which means he works to grow food like agriculture, but do it within a working ecosystem, and just be thinking about how this can apply on a spiritual level, because everything he's trying to do physically, we can try to do spiritually, and we'll chat more about it when we get back. So here's Lincoln explaining what he does. So the land around here makes forest if we leave it alone. Uh, that's the ecosystem type that occurs in the eastern United States and in big parts of much of the world. 
When we cut that forest down and till the ground to make our food, we can produce quite an abundance for people to eat, but we're also stopping the ecosystem from doing much of what it does, like cleaning water and building soil and providing wildlife habitat. So as a forest gardener, what I'm trying to do is learn how we can produce abundant food for people while also restoring the forest and all the ecosystem services that it does. So uh, a lot of that begins with obviously letting the trees grow back and not tilling the ground. And it also has a lot to do with learning what the forest here wants to produce. So it's sort of a conversation, like what do I want to eat? Uh, and so how can I get that? And then on the other hand, okay, well, what is being produced around here? Like going into my project here in Bowie, Maryland, I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a persimmon farmer necessarily. It's a, a, but the ground is just producing an abundant amount of persimmons where I live. And so turns out I'm a persimmon farmer because that's what the land here is telling me it wants to produce. And it's a great food for people. And, and so by, by adjusting ourselves to the forest and adjusting the forest to be sort of more agricultural for us, we can have a much better relationship and, and uh, do good things for the environment. Beyond me just thinking that that is a super cool project to be involved with, it is a picture of working in harmony with the, the, the way that the divine design is in the land. Just like there's a lot of pull in Swedenborg toward getting into what he calls the stream of providence. This is where you are still fully independent, but you're working with God, and you're using the truths and the idea that God is leading life to actually have a lot happier existence and a more meaningful, productive existence. So what he's doing there, noticing what what is the land giving, rather than just saying, here's what I want, clear everything out, we're going to get it. What is the land giving? This is like looking, what, what does the divine say? What does love say? What opportunities for love do I have in my life? I'm working with that, rather than like bulldoze it and figure out, what do I want? You know, that there's a greater partnership in it. So I think that that's a really cool metaphor for that. All right. So remember, we're in the middle of the Cain and Abel story. We're going to get back there. And this, so we've established Cain and Abel, love and faith, uh, or faith and love. And faith has to till the ground when it's separated from love. Meaning when you don't, when you're not in the religion thing, because you want to love God, love other people, you start to struggle to get meaningful things out of it and struggle to find it impacting your life in a good way. So Let's take a look at how the story continues. And it happened at the end of some days that Cain brought forward some of the fruit of the ground as an offering to Jehovah. And Abel, too, brought forward some of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Without this symbolism, it might be quite confusing, this part, if you're familiar with the story. You have Cain bringing some of the fruit of the ground, you know, vegetables, fruits, whatever he was growing, and then Abel bringing the firstborn of his flock. Well, why wouldn't God like the produce just as much? Wouldn't he like it more because, you know, it's not uh, having to work around an animal? And wh what does it all mean? It's only when you hear the correspondences that the story goes from, like, strange and sort of off-putting to pertinent and loving. So um, I, I've now I've promised that that transition is going to happen. Hopefully I can back it up here. Let's look at these elements individually. So what the end of some days, the fruit of the ground, what do these highlighted phrases mean? The secrets of heaven, three, four, six. The end of some days means the passage of time. 
Fruit of the ground means doing what faith requires without loving others. An offering to Jehovah means the worship rising out of those deeds. So at the end of some days in the passage of time, that's like, you don't even need a Swedenborg to tell you that. That makes sense. But the fruit of the ground, as we're talking about, Cain tilling the ground is this this kind of theology or, or life worldview where I have to do these certain things, but it doesn't. those things aren't necessarily loving to other people. They're just these, I got to do this ritual. I have to read this much sacred text a day. It doesn't... It doesn't have anything to do with how nice I am. I can be totally mean, but I've checked these boxes. And the offering to Jehovah is the worship rising out of those deeds. So, ironically, you know, a lot of what in history has been religious, this rigid, non-loving thing, but but yet, okay, we're worshiping, God must like that. That's the offering that God rejected. When you think, I'm religious, that's good that I'm religious, but you don't love anyone, and you're not kind, you don't do loving things, that offering that's what God doesn't want. He can't accept it. So that's one side of it. But then Abel bringing some of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So it mentions the fat. Let's dig into what it is. The firstborn of the flock has to do with uh, charity and Abel. Abel here symbolizes charity. The firstborn of his flock symbolized holiness, which is exclusively the Lord's. The fat symbolizes the actual quality of heaven, which is also the Lord's. Jehovah looked on Abel and on his offering means that everything connected with charity was pleasing to the Lord and was all worship springing from charity. And so we got that there. There is a few terms. Maybe it doesn't totally make sense, but it's generally the acts of love. The, The offering from Cain symbolized a hollow sort of pious but not actually loving life, whereas the firstborn of the flock symbolized love. And that still may seem strange. Let's get right into the strangest part of it and look at that word fat. Why is that included there? So Secrets of Heaven 353, let me address the symbolism of the fat as the actual quality of heaven, which also belongs to the Lord. Heaven's quality is made up of everything that belongs to love. Faith, too, is heavenly when it comes from love. Charity is a heavenly thing. All the good inspired by charity is heavenly. That fat has this symbol, is this symbol of of heavenly things. And if you think about you eat butter or something like that, that's, you know, feels kind of heavenly. But then also in the human body, you know, we, we have a lot of issues with obesity, these kinds of things. So we think of fat all negatively, but in its right proportions, it's doing wonderful things for the body. You know, it's, it's a crucial part of things. And so he's saying that there's a symbolism there that is a representation of love. Now, Still, though, we're talking about an animal, and whenever we bring this stuff up, we get people, wait a second, is God saying animal sacrifice is good? Is God wanting to kill animals? So I'm going to try to explain this, how this is not that, in a couple of points, and maybe I'll get it across, maybe I won't, and I want to go through them point by point. First of all, in this story in particular, in in the Bible, it doesn't say it's a burnt offering. That was something we assume it was, you know? because that's how it is through the rest of the Bible, but it doesn't actually say that. It just says he brought one forward, you know, whether or not, it doesn't say, oh, they killed it and burned it. That's a small point, but I wanted to make it. Also, Swedenborg is not, in his interpretation of this, he's not saying this is an actual event that happened. This is a symbolic story. Some of the Bible, he says, did happen, but not this one. 
And so he's not saying there really was some lamb somewhere that God said, kill that to represent this story. God isn't like that. And this is my third point. Something interesting that he says is there is animal sacrifice in a lot of religions. And he makes the point, Swedenborg says that this is not something that God enjoys, but it was allowed to continue because if you saw our last episode, it was called What God Can't Do, that there are certain things God can't do. And one of them is cannot force people out of evil. The way that Swedenborg tells it, people at a certain period in time had this evil in their hearts that if they weren't allowed to sacrifice animals, they would sacrifice their children, as it sometimes devolved into. So anyway, that's just going to cause more confusion. But he says that at times it was allowed because of that. Finally, if something happens in the literal sense of the Bible, it doesn't mean that God condones it. These stories are representative. There's There's a murder in this story, you know, Cain and Abel. There's a killing there. It doesn't mean God condones it. Even things done by what seem like the protagonists in the Bible, it's not about God condoning those actions on a literal level. As you can see as we work through this, this is symbolic. It's about the human psyche, and there's violence, and there are clashes, because that's what goes on in here and what leads to the conflicts in the world. Does that make any sense? Feel free to leave your comments anyway. I tried my best. All right, enough with that. Let's get on to the crux of the story in part two. Here it is. We promised it. It's coming. Get it over with. Get on to happier things. There's some lead up here, though, first. Let's take a look at Genesis 4.4. And Jehovah looked on Abel and on his offering, but Cain and his offering he ignored. And anger kindled strongly in Cain, and his face fell. And Jehovah said to Cain, Why has anger kindled in you, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will it not raise you up? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. And Abel longs for you, but you rule him. Here we have the beginning of the tension. Because God likes one, he doesn't like the other. As we said before, we talked about Cain before, but we see him in a bit of a new light here. So let's take a look at what he is. Secrets of Heaven 355. Cain, as I said, symbolizes faith detached from love, or at least the kind of doctrinal view that allows faith to be detached. His offering and the fact that Jehovah ignored it has the same symbolism as before, that his worship was not acceptable. The anger kindled in Cain and the falling of his face symbolize a change on the deeper levels. The anger means that charity took its leave, and his face symbolized the deeper levels, which when they change, are said to fall. And I find that, I don't know if irony is the right word, but so many people are bothered by the way that some religious people act. I'm sure that you've been bothered by it or know people who reject religion altogether because of this. And what this story is saying is that probably all that stuff you're bothered by is the stuff that God is rejecting as an offering. That you say you're this great Christian or whatever kind of person, but you're mean and you don't help, and you use me, the idea of me and my name to harm people, that's not, you know, you don't know me. 
That's what this story is saying there. And the anger in Cain is a symbol of how when you start to live like that, when you start to adopt religious or spiritual principles, but it's not leading you to love, you push love farther and farther away from you. You create this sort of anger. Uh, And let's take a look at that, that anger a little more deeply here. Swedenborg says, anger is a generalized emotion. Our reaction to everything that stands in the way of self-love and the desires that go along with it. Or in other words, getting what we want, anything that blocks us from getting what we want. This can be clearly perceived in the realm of evil spirits, where anger directed at the Lord is pervasive, because the inhabitants have no charity but only hatred. Whatever does not favor self-love and materialism arouses opposition, which displays itself in anger. So you get even more testy when you start to live by that you get more fanatical and this is essentially you see fundamentalism those kinds of things people are very angered very easily if you don't do what they say if you don't act just like they want you see that little seven you maybe didn't notice it but that seven is highlighted swedenborg has a commentary on that whole verse, uh, which is this last part here. And it's a longer quote, so we have it read with some illustrations to tease it out. So let's take a look um, at what, what does this end part mean. This verse presents a picture of the teachings concerning faith that are called Cain, which, because they divided faith from love, also divided faith from charity, the offspring of love. Wherever a church exists, heresies crop up because when we think about a single article of faith we make it our chief one it is a characteristic of human thought that when we turn our attention to one consideration we make it more important than another especially if our fantasies confirm it as our own personal discovery when love for ourselves and for worldly advantages inflates our pride, no circumstance fails to add its consent and support until we are almost ready to swear that it is true, even if it is false. So those referred to as Cain made faith more essential than love. And since they lived without love, they were helped along in their case by both self-love and the fantasies that accompany it. So there you have the the grabbing on, the, the devolving of the whole thing. And this next thing that we're going to look at, this line I think is the most intriguing when I was first looking at this. Abel longs for you, but you rule him. What does that mean? When you start to get to be a correspondences geek, as I probably would be classified, you get excited about lines like that. Because you know a little bit of the cast of characters. What is this? Charity longs for faith, but you rule him. So let's take a look at what Swedenborg says. He longs for you, but you rule him means that charity wants to coexist with faith, but cannot because faith wants to rule over it, which goes against proper order. As long as faith wants to be in charge, it is not faith. But when charity is in charge, faith is faith. This is because the main concern of faith is charity. Charity can be compared to a flame, which is essential for heat and light, since they come from it. Faith, when separated, can be compared to light, which without the warmth of the flame is still light, but a wintry light. And there's nothing that does not languish and die in winter's light. We're starting to get a little winter's light around here. And yeah, the plants, they can't survive on it. So there it's saying that when 
faith is in the when when ideas are more important than people, you don't have anything. I mean, you don't have charity doesn't work and faith doesn't work. And love wants to come in, but when those ideas are in charge, that exclusion is in charge, it doesn't work. But when love leads, then faith works, or ideas work. And so there's a definite order to things. And I love that it longs for you. Like, love isn't mad. Hey, you kicked me out. It wants to be back, and it wants to help. So that's the meaning of that little phrase, or a layer of the meaning of it. Swedenborg says everything here has multiple layers, but we'll stick with just one if that's fine with you. All right, let's get into the next verse. And Cain said to Abel his brother, And it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And there happens to be a strangely placed ellipsis there. What What's up with that? I don't know. Oh, hey, there we go. This is a note from the deluxe edition. Download the ebook. You'll get these kinds of things for free. And Cain said to Abel his brother, dot, dot, dot. And this, as you can see here in that note, the clause, and Cain said to Abel his brother, appears incomplete in both Hebrew and Latin, meaning where Swedenborg put it, but then also in the original text that the Old Testament comes from. There's no finishing part to that sentence. If you go to, uh, you know, whatever translation of the Bible, a lot of them will just have an asterisk there, and it'll say, certain translations use, fill that out and say, and Cain said to Abel's brother, let's go in a field, but a lot of them just leave it. And you could see that as, oh, this is an error, this is a flaw in the document. As Swedenborg puts it, all these things have meaning. This fragmented sentence is meant to be like that, because that has a different symbolism than it would have been filling the whole thing out. So let's look at this phrase, Cain said to Abel. Cain said to Abel means a length of time. Cain symbolizes faith separated from love. So we should know these things already. Abel symbolizes charity, the brother of faith, which is why he is called brother twice here. So he's getting into the, the fact that the word brother is used twice means something. The field symbolizes every point of doctrine. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him means that detached faith extinguished charity. And that the field symbolized every point of doctrine, to me, that's the most interesting thing. That's where religion killed love, was in doctrine, in these ideas that people have to be this specific way. You have to think this way. You have to think like I do. These are the rules. You have to pay this money to this person. That is where, in that field, is where religion killed love. I think that's fascinating. So let's look further into that when they were in the field uh, symbolism. We can now deduce what it means that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The meaning is that while both faith and charity grew out of the doctrine concerning faith, faith detached from love could not help completely devaluing charity, and in this way, extinguishing it. Like, okay, I know you're supposed to love, but it's not really part of, it doesn't really matter, it's not what gets you into heaven. Let's just focus on what gets you into heaven. People do the same thing today when they claim that faith alone will save them, even if they never perform a single act of neighborly love. So their theory itself annihilates charity, even though they recognize and pay lip service to the idea that faith does not save unless there is love. Don't fall asleep. Is this, is there's too much symbolism and faith and charity and all this? It may seem a little abstract to you, may not seem potent, but once you understand the concept, it is potent. So let's think about 
what what it would be sort of in modern times. First, let's take a look at Secrets of Heaven 369, uh, which goes further into this. Oh, wait, no, 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 never mind. I just did that one. Um, what I want to talk about is that the um, separating of faith and charity being an act of violence. Swedenborg describes it, it's like separating blood from the body. This is a very important thing not to do. And we, we see it in the world around us. For example, uh, Heaven and Hell, uh, we have a Facebook page called Heaven and Hell. We have a YouTube channel called Off the Left Eye. We are at the Swedenborg Foundation. So I work on both those mediums, and even there, plus the rest of either of these social networks, you see this kind of killing happening even today. People will come in, and they are religious. They're saying, I, you know, I'm... I'm saved, and you guys are all idiots for believing thing X, or you have to do this, or else you're going to go to hell. They're, they're completely, the way they talk to each other, the way they talk to uh, other people that, that don't agree with them, it just, it's got this hatred inside it. But it's like supposed to be religious at the same time. Or if it's not even religious, if you're, if you're atheist or secularist, but you come in and say, my, my ideas are much better than yours, so you're stupid, and I can criticize you and speak cruelly to you. You see this killing in action on these platforms. But it doesn't even have to be related to uh, religious teachings. It can just be about life stuff. For example, parenting. If you think about Facebook parenting, there can be these ideas that start from love. This idea, hey, if we do this for our kids, that will help them, that will make them healthier, happier, smarter, more well-adjusted. But it starts to, faith starts to creep in and kill charity. You begin to get attached to your ideas. Like, I know no kids can have sugar ever, and if I see somebody else on Facebook that's having sugar, I'm going to yell at them and tell them how bad they are, or I'm going to go out and criticize the way somebody else is raising their children. That's one issue of many. We see it in politics. If you have this opposing idea, I'm going to attack you as a human being. This ideology mattering more than people happens all over the place. We're seeing the Cain and Abel murders in front of us. So that's bad. And let's, we want to know now what comes out of that beyond just unpleasant dialogue. What are the consequences of this spiritual killing? So let's take a look at part three. And Jehovah said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's guardian? So here we have pretty famous line here. Uh, often that's translated, Am I my brother's keeper? You find that is a pretty famous phrase. Let's take a look here at Jehovah said to Cain and what that means. Jehovah said to Cain means a certain perception from deep down that spoke of charity which is Abel, your brother. And it's interesting that he often, when, it's, when the, in the Bible it says, God says to someone, it's actually representing a realization on your own. You know, this, this, it just seems like it's your own. He said, I do not know, am I my brother's guardian? Means that he considered charity worthless, not wanting to act as its servant. So it means that he totally rejected anything having to do with charity. This is what their doctrine had become. So that exchange is this, 
symbolic of, uh, I don't care. I, I don't care if there's love or not. Like, I don't need any of that hippie stuff. You got to believe this. You got to do this. I'm right. I got to be like this. So that's one of the things. Let's move on to the following verse. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So we got some pretty intense stuff here. Let's take a look at the voice and the crying out. And what does it mean? The voice of his brother's blood symbolizes violence inflicted on charity. The fact that the blood cries out symbolizes guilt. So there you have an internal realization, like something wrong has been done here. And there's this uh, hatred that occurs there uh, when this this blood symbolizes also a hatred. And that hatred is murder. It's not always just killing. Like I said before, I was talking about this heaven and hell Facebook page. People get on there, say things, or, or YouTube. It doesn't have to be you kill someone the in the hatred or burning anger against somebody is has hatred within it. Swedenborg describes the Ten Commandments, and he says that the commandment about murder in the spiritual sense is about hatred, is about holding animosity towards someone else, because he says, little do we know on a spiritual level that actually burns with killing. I mean, that if all bonds were released, hatred that you hold would lead to that. So, Good reminder to us to not harbor that kind of stuff within us. All right, let's move on to the next verse. And now a curse on you from the ground, which opened its mouth, receiving your brother's blood from your hand. And now we start to get into the, we know hatred isn't good, but what are the consequences for the human race, for individuals of this separation of kicking love out? taking an idea. So here's another uh, quote being read from Swedenborg about this idea of the curse. Wicked and loathsome acts, that is, acts of hatred, are what turn us away and make us look downward only toward bodily and earthly concerns, or in other words, towards the things of hell. This happens when we send charity into exile and extinguish it, which shatters the bond between the Lord and us. Only charity, which is love and mercy, maintains the bond. Faith without charity, incapable of doing so, since it is no faith but mere knowledge, of a kind that even the devil's hoard can acquire. They are further able to use it for deliberately deceiving the upright and impersonating angels of light. The worst preachers sometimes do the same, with a zeal that seems to spring from piety, although nothing is farther from their minds than what they utter with their lips. Can there be a person with judgment so unsound as to believe that a memorized faith can have any effect by itself? Or that mere thought based on that faith can have any effect? On the contrary, we all know from our own experience that no one can tell the real value of another's statements and assertions if they do not arise from the will or from genuine intent. It is the will and intention that please us and connect us to one another. Our real identity is whatever we will, not what we think or say without willing it. Our will is what determines our nature and character, because it is the will that has an effect. 
If, on the other hand, our thoughts are good, then the essence of faith, which is charity, lies inside the thought because goodwill is present. But if we say our thoughts are good, while we live an evil life, we can never desire anything but evil, in which case faith is out of the question. And you notice that clip about the preacher saying, oh, I love everyone teaching, but really it's it's got a self-serving or evil origin. This was something that was viscerally real to Swedenborg because he was, as you maybe have heard if you spent the last 30 minutes watching this niche technical Swedenborgian show, Swedenborg could travel into the spiritual world, meaning out-of-body experiences they would now be called at-will, lucid, could go see heaven and hell, could talk to angels and spirits and demons, and he would see all kinds of hell coming out of the Christian world that he was involved in. There would be preachers who were some of the most uh, problematic evil spirits that Swedenborg deal, could had to deal with were clergy members, you know, from, and he was, at the time in Sweden, it was not quite a theocracy, but it was a lot of religion all over everything. So this was really a big deal to him, to, to point out that you can't just have the outside be pious if you're not pious on the inside, right? So the story is a rough one. There's a lot of sadness, a lot of despair. Will it ever get better? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you yet. Let's see what the, let's see what the next verse is. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength for you. A wanderer and fugitive you will be on the earth. And Cain said to Jehovah, My wickedness is too great to be taken away. Look, you have thrown me out today off the face of the ground, and I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a wanderer and fugitive on the earth, and it will come about that anyone who finds me will kill me. A wanderer and a fugitive. That's what we want to look at here first. So what what does it mean if you separate love and charity? What does it mean to become a wanderer and a fugitive? So let's take a look. Being a wanderer and fugitive on the earth means not knowing what is true or good. It's a short statement, but I think it's incredibly potent because isn't that the human experience? We don't know what's true or what's good. Even on a physical level, we don't even always know what's healthy. What am I supposed to eat? Yeah, is it low carb? Is it high protein? Is it high carb? Is it low protein? Is it low fat? Is it high fat? Just externally, what what is healthy? What is not healthy? But then internally, how do I think? Of, how loving do I be? How much do I set boundaries? What do I do in this situation? Should I be fighting this feeling? Should I be indulging this feeling? Is there a middle ground? We don't know what's true and what's good. There's confusion all over. And that this is the echoes of this Cain killing Abel throughout history. That's what Swedenborg is asserting here. So to be a wanderer and a fugitive means I don't know. Not like in Eden where I knew where I was, I knew the names of all the animals, all the emotions, I knew what was going on in my own psyche. We're, we're in the dark a lot of times here. We don't know what's a good influence, what's a bad influence. So that's what being a wanderer and a fugitive is. And you can see in this statement here, Cain starts to despair. And we want to look at what that despair means. So this is Secrets of Heaven 388 through 389. When we deprive ourselves of charity, we cut ourselves off from the Lord. 
Charity, love for others, and mercy is the only thing that binds us to the Lord. Without charity, there is disconnection. When there is disconnection, we are left to ourselves or to our own devices. Under those circumstances, every thought we think is false and every purpose we intend is evil. These are the things that kill a person or cause a person to be lifeless. And this would be spiritual death, as Swedenborg describes it. You're cutting yourself off from love, and love is life. So hell is what Swedenborg would call spiritual death. You're still looking around and doing stuff and sensing, but your true life is in love. It is in empathy. It is in thinking of things greater than yourself and acting in a way that's going to serve a, a larger cause. That's life. And this state that you get into if you push love away has the added negative attribute of creating fear. And here we're talking about the origin of fear. Fear is such a big part of the human experience. And Swedenborg says it's partly this separating of love and faith or, or you know, goodness and truth that creates fear. And he saw it play out in the spiritual world. And this is what he said about it. 607, 390 to 391. This place and others in the word depict those who are subject to falsity and evil. How they flee and how they fear they will be killed. Everything causes them fear because no one is protecting them. I'm thinking about if you see like a mob movie or something, uh, someone who's in organized crime, they can't trust anybody. All who have evil and falsity inside hate their neighbor. Therefore, each of them is eager to kill the others. The best evidence that those under the sway of falsity and evil are afraid of everyone is provided by evil spirits and the other life. The ones who have deprived themselves of all charity wander and flee. Everywhere they go, whatever communities they may happen upon, perceive immediately on their first approach what kind of person each of them is. That kind of perception is possible in the other life. These communities not only drive such spirits off, but also punish them severely, and in fact would like to kill them if they could. The evil take enormous delight in punishing and torturing each other. In this, their greatest joy consists. And to reveal a secret, falsity and evil themselves lie at the root. Since what one person desires to do to another returns on that person's own head, falsity and evil carry with them their own punishment, and so also the fear of punishment. Sounds a little bit like karma, and it's an important point that's being made there. It's not God that's punishing, but when you reject love, God is love, and love is protection, the protection from evil impulses, evil desires, evil thoughts. If you push that out, you're not going to see why something's wrong. You're not going to empathize with anyone. You're going to go after pursuing a life of harmful actions. And if you're doing that, you have problems, especially in the spiritual world, because everybody in the spiritual world is around people who are like them. And you can see in that passage, if you're around people who are terrible psychopaths, is not a helpful life. And everyone can tell what everyone's like. So it's just this chaos. You bring what you intend to do to other people starts to come back on you. This is the pushing away that happens. It's not that God is punishing people, but if you reject love, the life you get in return is not as good. So don't reject it. Keep it around. But Cain, even though he's in this rough spot, he doesn't die, does he? Let's take a look now in part four at why that is. So why 
is religion still around? That's the question we're going to be tackling here. Right now, we certainly see the impact on society of religion without love. You know, we think about uh, September 11th, the terrorism, uh, a lot of it is um, coming Islamic fundamentalist terrorism at this point. But it's important to note that this that's not the only time. This has been happening. There's a long and morbid history of people using religion to justify bad actions. And so here's Richard Smoley giving us a quick rundown, just to understand the, the problems that have come out of uh, religious organizations throughout the years. Well, there's been a long history of religious aggression and persecution and the use of God and gods uh, to oppress other people. This goes well back into ancient times when you may remember from the Bible, um, when kings of countries like Assyria conquered another nation, like for example, Israel, they would, or Judah, uh, they wanted them to accept their gods. Uh, and accepting the, the gods of Assyria above your own gods was a sign of religious submission. And this was a big problem for the Jews and the Hebrews because they only would uh, accept one god. Um, and so this is a long, long tradition that goes back. Now, Christianity, of course, started out as a persecution, uh, per- persecuted religion for its first three centuries. But as soon as it got control, it started persecuting others. Uh, in 395 AD or 392 AD, Christianity was proclaimed the official faith of the Roman Empire, and they started to close the pagan temples, the philosophical schools of Plato and the other philosophers. And they also began to persecute other Christians whose beliefs were not quite in the line with that of the established church. And this was a tradition that went on for centuries in different contexts and different cultures. Uh, Some have said that the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was the first attempt to create a total society. By that I mean not only political control, but complete religious and ideological control. The ancient Romans were not terribly concerned about really what you believed. They were interested in having you uh, at least pay some kind of perfunctory uh, obeisance to the gods, and hopefully that would be enough for the gods. But the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, in in the West, and and certainly the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, wanted doctrinal uh, control over everybody's beliefs. And this uh, led to terrible persecutions. There was a sect called the Cathars who uh, may well have been closer to early Christianity uh, than the Catholic Church was at that point, who were basically wiped out. And um, they even had the honor of the Inquisition uh, being created uh, just for them. Uh, Later on, there were terrible religious wars as Protestantism uh, arose to combat the excesses of the Catholic Church. And the, the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe or times of terrible religious warfare. Um, the six, the, uh, sorry, the Thirty Years' War, uh, which took place between 1618 and 1648, was almost entirely, at least motivated, by struggles between Catholics and Protestants. Later on still, uh, as Europe began to colonize the other uh, parts of the world, um, the indigenous traditions were uh, at least um, scorned and often uh, persecuted. Um, 
The uh, India, uh, which had an enormous rich civilization, was terribly demoralized by the British Raj in the 19th century, where uh, you know the, the Christians not only were trying to convert the Indians, uh, but trying to make their religion seem inferior. Um, you know, it's true that little by little, especially after the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. Christianity has been less and less belligerent, but there still have been uh, instances. Uh, and, you know, in our own country, um, the uh, dominant white culture persecuted native religion uh, and suppressed it. It was uh, until fairly recently illegal to practice some Native American religions, even in spite of the First Amendment. And finally, someone took a case to court and said, well, hey, you know, what about this freedom of religion thing? Don't we have it too? Um, and although that happened, and uh, Native Americans have the right to worship, um, it's pretty uh, fairly recent, uh, within a generation or two. Um, so the violence in the Middle East is certainly uh, what we're familiar with, and Islam seems to be the, the, the greatest perpetrator in our day and age. But it was not always so. And I think it's important to realize that Islam, Islamists, and so on, by no means invented uh, the idea of using religion as a uh, means of persecution in a way of oppressing others. So what you just heard is the life, the autobiography of Cain. I mean, that's the impact this phenomenon has had on the world. You might think that is a really bad thing. Why doesn't God just smite Cain on the spot, it would be bad, but you'd stop a lot of bad. But if you know the story, Cain doesn't get killed by God. God actually does something to ensure his survival. So why? Let's take a look. Genesis 4.15. And Jehovah said to him, Therefore anyone who kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. And Jehovah put a mark on Cain that no one who found him should strike him. So here we have Jehovah protecting Cain and putting this mark on Cain. Why? Let's take a look at the meaning of the mark. This is Secrets of Heaven 393 to 394. It was foreseen, though, that the human race would not maintain this character, meaning the ideal, loving first character of the human race, but would split faith off from love for the Lord and make it into a doctrine of its own. So it was also provided that faith would indeed be split off, but in such a way that through it, or through a knowledge of it, the Lord would give us a heart for charity. The charity acquired by this means not only would be inseparable from faith, but also would constitute faith's principal concern. Now, as these things were foreseen and provided in order to prevent the human race from dying an eternal death, the present verse says that no one was to do violence to Cain, who symbolizes a detached faith. It also says that a mark was placed on him, that is, that the Lord singled faith out in a special way in order to preserve it. This is hidden knowledge that has never before come to light. So it's a fresh scoop from Swedenborg a couple hundred years ago, saying that faith was even though it had the potential to cause all this kind of evil, you do hear about that, these wars and all that. At the same time, you look around the world today, people's personal religious journeys are doing a lot of good as well. It doesn't make as many headlines, but there's all kinds of people who are having a rock in their lives, a foundation, having a transformation, leading somewhere positive. Their, their relationship with God, their religion, their religious tradition is a big part of that. So... 
God foresaw things, said, even though there's problems with faith, there's going to be more good that comes out of it. And the particular leading to charity or love that faith can do can't be duplicated by anything else. We've got to have it in there. And it's interesting that Swedenborg said it has to have love toward the neighbor as the core of the religion. Maybe you've seen this before, but the golden rule is in all kinds of traditions. We've got a slow, oops, we've got a slow crawl of them up here. That is in pretty much every tradition that sticks around, because that is the point of it. And that through all this other stuff, all these teachings about life and these rules, it leads you in a way that's inseparable from that. doesn't work for everyone. There's plenty of people in all these traditions that aren't finding that faith, but it is a lifeline that can be used, and these can be used by different people to get you to that charity. There was just uh, Richard Smoley, who was just in that interview, recently attended the the World Congress of Faith. So I, man, I forget what it's called now, but it's this meeting they had it in Salt Lake City this year. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. Actually, Swedenborgian was involved in the very first one of those, but people from all different faiths come together and say, can't we all just get along? And, and the, for the people there, it's pretty much a love fest because those people have charity or seem to. So there is the potential. In the end, the whole thing weighed this faith does good. That's why the mark was put on it, so it wouldn't be obliterated from the earth, because we need it. That's Swedenborg's assertion. You don't have to believe it. You can believe anything you want. Either way, let's take a look now at part five and life outside of Eden. We move on now. In Genesis 4, let's pick up at verse 16 to see where the story leads now. And Cain went out from before Jehovah, and he lived in the land of Nod, to the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and delivered Enoch. And Cain was building a city, and he named the city after his son Enoch. So there's a few things to look at in there. First of all, uh, let's take a look at this phrase. There's a couple things I want to look at. The yellow guides the way. Let's take a look at this yellow phrase. Cain went out from before Jehovah means that he was cut off from the good inherent in a loving faith. His living in the land of Nod is living outside truth and goodness. Living to the east of Eden means living by the dictates of the intellectual part of the mind, where before love had reigned supreme. It is also living by the dictates of the rational mind, where before charity had reigned supreme. This is established by earlier statements concerning the symbolism of Eden's east, in which the east is identified with the Lord and Eden with love. And if you look at our the story of Adam and Eve episode that we did, you know, Eden is love. And when you're out of it, and he's out of it to the east, which the east is this intellectual side. So he's too far. You can actually be too far that direction. So let's take a look at the city. Cain got there. He started to build this city. <clears throat> From a single heresy, once seized upon, many others are born. Just as cities symbolize doctrinal views, they also symbolize heretical views. The city is the mind, you know. You have the ideas in a mind are like a city. They're organized, they have a life to them, and he's saying that they're, oh, hey, there was two of me for a second there, that was awesome. Can't get too much Curtis. So the ideas in their mind are organized like a city, and so there's a symbolism 
in the word of cities. And this matters. He was building a city for himself, meaning people who get separated out of love start to justify their world. And another point is that he found a wife where he went outside of Eden. Some people will look at the Bible and say, what's it talking about? There's God creates two people, they have kids, and then how are they going to go off and marry someone? Who, where does that other person come from? Swedenborg says the meaning of that phrase is not a literal account. The meaning of Cain finding a wife that was not in Eden is when you have this false doctrine of life, this false way of looking at life, you start to bring in feelings that are not from God, meaning they originally come from God, but we twist them into something that isn't anymore like God. This tribalism, only caring about yourself, not caring about other people. That's the wife that Cain took. And actually, if you look at the genealogies, that they, this whole thing here, Cain, Enoch, it lists that out. And you might think, this is just a strange use of paper. But Swedenborg says, each of these guys symbolizes a particular... This is a bad idea that led to another bad idea that led to another bad idea. And you can follow the traditions in the world and see, "Mm, this led to this, this led to this, this led to that problem. And he says that all those are these particular doctrines or cities of the mind. Cool? You believe me? Good. So everything starts good, then it deteriorates. That's the general kind of pattern. Secrets of Heaven 407. The state of a church in general, remember that's an external thing, but more primarily, or or primarily an internal state of mind, is such that over time it tends to ebb away from true faith and finally terminate without any faith. When faith is gone, the church is described as devastated or ruined. That is what happened in the earliest church among those called followers of Cain. Even so, a nucleus of the church always remains in existence, unrecognized by those whose faith has been destroyed. And it's that nucleus that we take and finally start to get something less pessimistic. There's cause for optimism, and there is a happy ending And we're going to get to it now, and it begins with a little child. If we're going to find our happy place, we are, of course, going to find it in the book Secrets of Heaven, and we're going to find it in the number 408. When a church has been so thoroughly devastated that no more faith remains, it makes a new start. A new light shines out. See our episode called The Spiritual History of the Human Race for this progression of churches or mindsets throughout human history. In the word, this is called mourning. The reason why the new light or mourning does not dawn before devastation is complete is that any manifestation of faith or charity is mingled with something profane. As long as they are mingled, no light or charity can be introduced. Tears destroy all the good seed. When there is no faith, faith can no longer be profaned because no one believes what is said anyway. Those who do not acknowledge and believe something only know it but cannot profane it. Essentially, one form of religion or culture or something completely dies out. Everyone rejects it before something new is born. And we see this in all kinds of things in in culture. That thing's got to be totally out of here because it's corrupt. You, You see right now there's a backlash against organized religion. That's part of the cycle, as he says. Get it out of here. We don't want that stuff. Now we're get there's going to be something brand new that starts. And so here we start to get into the last part of the story where there is this child born. So let's look at Genesis 4, verse 25. And the human knew his wife again, and she delivered a son and called his name Seth. 
because God has restored other seed for me in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. And to Seth in turn a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then people began to call on the name of Jehovah. We can kind of see now, we know what Abel was. He was this initial love that people had in in the mind, in the heart. So if Seth is born in place of Abel, he's got to symbolize something similar, right? That's how it works. And you see that Seth had a son. Just so we saw that genealogy of negative stuff, good things lead to good things. And you notice there, after Seth had his son, then people began to call on the name of of Jehovah. So something good is happening here, but what? Let's take a look at Seth. He, it says, Secrets of Heaven 434, their son whose name she called Seth symbolizes a new faith that will allow charity to take hold. God has restored other seed in place of Abel. Since Cain killed him means that charity, which Cain separated and extinguished, has now been given to this church as a gift by the Lord. Swedenborg is all about this progression from church, old church, it dies out, something new comes. And he says, in this day and age, a new church is on its way. We've seen organized religion do all kinds of bad things, cause all kinds of problems, but we're going to see something new. There's going to be a new love that grows up and, and takes over where Abel would have been. This is something that is beginning now, and we're going to give you a little bit of a vision of that here. This is our last number for the night. It's going to be read. It's longer, and it in it in the beginning it starts out explaining some things, but by the end we have a vision for what the world would be like if Abel was in charge, if Abel led Cain instead of Cain killing Abel. So here's what it could be. Anyone can recognize that once we have adopted a principle, we are capable of marshalling an unlimited wealth of arguments to prove it, no matter what its nature is, even if it is the height of falsity. Superficially, we can make it look as though it were the epitome of truth. That is how heresy arises, and from heresy we never back away once we have confirmed it. However, all that comes from a false principle is false thinking. Even if truth is injected, it still becomes falsified when used in support of the false principle, having been polluted with the quality of that principle. The situation is completely different if we adopt and confirm real truth as a principle. Take this proposition, for instance. Love for the Lord and charity for our neighbor are the essential ingredients of all theology and worship. If we took this as a premise, our minds would then be enlightened by vast numbers of passages in the Word that otherwise lie hidden in the murk of false assumptions. In fact, heresy would then vanish. All the churches would join into one, no matter how great the differences in doctrinal teachings derived from this premise or pointing to it, and no matter how great the differences in ritual. If this were how matters now stood, we would all be ruled by the Lord as a single person. We would be like members and organs of a single body, which, although they differ in form and function, are still connected to a single heart on which they all depend, each in its own form, each different from the next. Then, no matter what our theology or our outward form of worship, we would each say, 
You are my kin. I see that you worship the Lord and that you are a good person. You can throw out everything from the rest of the show. Keep that last line. I see that you're a good person. You're my kin. You're worshiping in your own way. We can be friends. It's a paraphrase, but that doesn't just extend to religious things. This, I can see you're living your life this way. You're parenting this way. You have these political views. Of course, there are cutoffs for things that are genuinely harmful, but we could go a long way toward being accepting and saying, I see you're different than me, but you're my kin. We're in this together. That is what it could be if everybody, even though we maintain our differences, we have our differences of opinion, but love is in charge. Abel is in the lead. That's the world we could be looking to. So hopefully uh, we'll all be there pretty soon. And if you want to be there a lot faster, click like and subscribe because that will help this video. It matters if you click them. That will help this video spread and hopefully people will be moved by it or or at least, you know, moved to... All right, well, we'll if you just stop making videos like this, we'll all be nice. Either way, something good is going to happen. So do that if you want to support the programming. Feel free to make a donation. This is a nonprofit. Uh, Swedenborg Foundation is, and so we are able to bring this kind of stuff out because of the support you all have been generously giving. Very much appreciated. And as promised, we're going to get to questions. There should be a number of them because, man, that's a lot to digest. Uh, so we'll do it right on the other side of this quick break. Let's get to them. We, uh, I remember when this show used to be half an hour. And we, can, we cannot keep it, even the section before the questions, we can't keep it under an hour anymore. But you guys are still here, which I very much appreciate, so I'm going to give you your money's worth by answering some questions. Let's take a look. Question number one. Lee, did the giants of old come from the seed of Cain? Oh, I got a feeling we're going to start it with one I don't know the answer to. Nephilim. Are you talking about Nephilim? There's this term in the Bible that that uh, Nephilim, they were giants in the land. And as far as did they come from Cain or not, you mean like specifically within the Bible, like this led to this, or are you talking about from the faith alone? Because if it's, you know, ideas separated from love, all evil has that component. As far as the giants, did they come from Cain? With it, I don't know. There's other people who I, I don't want to presume, but I bet you could do a quick Google on that one. So there's my first failure. Let's look at the next one. Seth, I think people people will pay to see me not be able to answer things. Seth, did Swedenborg endorse practicing conscious astral projection? It's a great question because he doesn't really do anything around that. He spent he obviously was doing conscious astral projection. I mean, that's the state he was always in. He was after his awakening in his mid human beings at the same time. However, he doesn't He's, he wrote so much, and he spends none of that time trying to teach people how to do that same thing. He was always aware of the spiritual world, always could talk to spirits and talk to human beings at the same time. However, he doesn't, he's, he wrote so much, and he spends none of that time trying to teach people how to do that same thing. He's very much more interested in, here's how you 
interact with people. Here's how you push away harmful things, bring good things. That he he says that there are some precautions, you know, the spiritual world, if you don't know what you're doing in the spiritual world, you're going to get misled because spirits lie. That's just how they do it. You got to have this foundation, this protection from heaven that comes from having your heart open to love, these kinds of things. So he doesn't, but he doesn't come down against it. He says in the earliest times, in the ideal times, you could talk to, you could be in the spirit, you could talk to angels, you would get direct things from God. So I'd say, man, he doesn't go out and say, you have to do this to progress. He gives some cautions, but he also doesn't spend much time saying how to do it. That said, there's probably a lot that can be gained from it. Just make sure you, you arm yourself and are on streets, street smart, just like if you're going to visit a city. you got to know what you're doing. So hopefully in his works there's some good material. Let's reject it because it's pagan. I just was talking with someone who was, who was talking about the, early, the origins of Halloween. Not to get ahead of myself, I love a good travel brochure there for people who are trying to make that trip. Thanks. Let's take a look at the next one. Ryan, I'm just wondering, do you agree with Halloween? Because a lot of Christians reject it because it's pagan. I just was talking with someone who was who was talking about the early the origins of Halloween. Not to get ahead of myself, I like Halloween. We just did it, uh, and it was it was a lot of fun. We were sitting, me, my wife, a couple of our buddies were sitting in front of my house, giving out candy. Fun to see little kids. They're cute in their costumes. A lot of teenagers that are still trick-or-treating, which is great. Um, and it's cool. And there's community. People are, you know, th- this guy that I was talking to was saying, you know, there's a lot of community that comes out of Halloween. You see your neighbors. They come around to you. You get to talk about costumes. That community and that love pushes away evil spirits. There are these origins. Um, no, certainly not rejecting it because it's pagan. You know, there's nothing like, this is, you know, this is sort of a faith alone thing. Oh, because that's from a different tradition, that's against that ending, that ending video that we had. I see you're my kin and you worship the Lord. Pagan stuff, if it's got love, it's good. If it's got love, it's good. The jack-o'-lanterns were originally meant to frighten away evil spirits. You know, there's good stuff in it and certainly not just reject it because it's non-Christian. I say Halloween is cool. I've had a good experience with it and I'm sure there's correspondences going on in there that heaven is working its way into there somehow. I would like to do a whole show on Halloween, but we've got to wait till next year. Okay, so good question. Thanks. Let's take a look at the next one. Robin. While reading Secrets of Heaven, I have noticed that sometimes a thing will correspond to one thing in one part and something else at another. Is there a part that gives an index of correspondences? Okay, you're right. If you look in Secrets of Heaven, things shift correspondences all the time. Swedenborg says, we were looking today at the internal sense of the Bible. He says that sense shifts based on what's happening in the story, based because something, depending on what comes before and after it, can mean something different. It can mean different things at different times. There are different levels. This thing has a ton of meaning in it. He doesn't even give it all. He gives some. He gives a little bit in, in 15 volumes. He gives a little bit of the meaning of the first, like, a uh, few books up to Exodus, something that is not much at all. There is an index, there's a, something called Searle's Index that was published by a guy a while ago that gives an index of correspondences. Just this corresponds to this, this corresponds to that. There is that kind of thing. The Swedenborg Foundation might carry that. Um, but So there is that. Swedenborg himself doesn't 
lay it out ever just in list form. He will say things, but you're right. It does. It's it's more of a living thing. There's a time when there's a there's a story of Pharaoh, uh, and he says, "What have you done to me?" Because there's you know it was almost tricked into something that could have harmed him. And Swedenborg says that the feeling behind it is the correspondence. So it's much more of a living, complex thing than we can really wrap our heads around. Um, so there's my answer. There is, but but I still don't feel like I understand the whole thing. And it's 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 complicated and it's alive. Okay, good. All right, let's do the next one. Preliminal. Preliminal. I would like to understand the gift of grace. When a heart is aligned, God sees that. What does Swedenborg mention about the gift of grace? Oh man, <clears throat> I'm not I'm not totally sure. I know that there are there are different people uh think of that differently as a technical term, what the gift of grace is. I'll take a stab at at, at um saying what I think you mean by it. Nobody can do good things on their own without God. The the ability to be human and especially the ability to love and be good. This all comes from God. And this is something that God is giving to us. Some people refer to grace in terms of, you know, we're sinners and God is lifting us into heaven. And Swedenborg describes a similar phenomenon, not that we are condemned for like a previous sin from Adam and Eve, but that we all have tendencies towards selfishness, towards hell, that kind of thing. And um, we would all be pulling towards that. We are pulling towards that, but God is constantly pulling us back, redirecting us, slowly reforming us, making us into better people. And this is something that God is doing free of charge, out of love. So that is sort of like grace. Those are I'm going to give those stabs at it. Hopefully, if other people know better what you're talking about, they can uh, say some stuff in the chat room and uh, and clear it up. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. Let's take a look at the next one. Lisa, how do we know that the second death is immortal existence in hell and not annihilation? Well, how do we know? Swedenborg certainly makes that claim. He says that just in the way that he was shown the meaning of these parts of the Bible, he was shown the meaning of the second death. But that comes down to taking his word for it. Um, as far as how you could prove that it's not annihilation, I mean, this this is stuff we don't have science instruments that can measure these kinds of things. Um, annihilation seems like sad situation is is that what would free will mean if you choose there's choices you can choose good or evil but if you choose evil you're just going to get killed i mean you're going to get obliterated that's sort of there's only one choice really so i think you you couldn't quite work that in to to the system uh that's my thought on it um there's more we you know swedenborg's show is more about how context makes these things um, suggest these things, but really stuff like that, you're you're not going to find. I don't think hard proof of this is how we know it. So I think you got to weigh it in your heart and see what what do you really feel like could be true. So there's my thought on that. Next one. How does this connect to Jesus, Houston? One thing that's interesting that Swedenborg says is that the entire, as I was bragging about before, the entire Bible has multiple levels of meaning. And in one, on one level, the entire thing is the description of the inner life 
of Jesus Christ. We did some show, we did a show called The Spiritual Struggles of Jesus Christ, and in there, Jesus Christ, essentially, short version, is God in a finite form that we can understand and relate to and approach. That's that's Jesus. And the, the, the Bible is showing what his process was like when he was on earth. Basically, here's how you get to know Jesus is, is through these things. So this story, we were talking about it primarily as this is a, you know, a church uh, and this is the separation in the human mind of love and wisdom. There's a level about Jesus that's going on. Swedenborg doesn't explain a lot of that, so I don't know it. I couldn't take a guess at it. But that, that, that um, Pharaoh thing I was talking about before, what have you done to me? That was Jesus' emotion when he learned that he was going to have to give up this certain way of thinking as he progressed. So there's a couple of connections, um, not to mention whenever we say God in this show, Swedenborg says God, Jesus, that's the same thing. So there's a connection, you know, all the God stuff we said in this show is Jesus. So there you go. There's a couple. Two more questions. Let's get at them. White Dove, why does religions fight with and hate each other? It seems mind-boggling that, that they wouldn't get along, but it comes down to a couple of things. Primarily, faith without love. That you don't, you have these rules and guidelines that make a religion, but you don't have love leading. So just like any other tribalism, when these are my people in my particular group, I hate everyone who's outside of my group. If you don't have love in your religion, it doesn't get rid of that natural urge to not like people who aren't like you, so there's no antibody, people just go after each other. So I think there's that, and I think, yeah, it's just, if there's not love in a religion, it's just dressing on the ego. It's already there. Uh, so so you're not going to prevent these kinds of fighting. It's not going to do anything. So it's, that's actually a sign of absence of true religion when you're, when you're going up in arms against each other because you can't find any common ground of love. So that's what I have to say about that. Let's close out the night with this one. Ashley, YouTube, the way I see other religions is simple. There is one God called by many names, and gods are attributes of the one. It helps me love and accept others. Is this okay? Well, I'd say if anything helps you love and accept others, that's okay. Because that is what's getting you actually close to God, is loving and accepting of others. That's Abel. Cain is getting tied up in rules. And I, I happen to agree with that statement. And I think especially anything that's helping you love and accept others, that is religion. I mean, that, that is the path. But that's what's most important. The ideas are nice, and they're good springboards, but if you don't have that love and accept of others, you don't have anything. So I think you're in a great spot. All of you are in a great spot because you're all watching the, the last part of this show, which means you, you really made it through. And so we're going to ease your pain here by stopping the program. Thank you so much for hanging out. We'll be back next week. We're going to look, we're going to get out of this heady biblical interpretation and look at the fundamental human experience of gratitude. So hopefully you can join us for that. I'll see you then.